So, Lindsay and me are in the middle of our second week as parents. And one of the things that I have already learned is that my son is never more awake than he is around 2 o'clock in the morning. I've also learned that 2 o'clock in the morning, holding a son who is wide awake, is a really good time to catch up on reading. So around the middle of the week, one morning this, mor- this week, he was just wide awake. He'd just eaten, and it takes him like two hours to go to sleep after that. And so I'm just sitting there holding him, and I was, I was catching up on some of the, the columns that I like to read each week. And there's this one guy in particular who writes a column two times a week for the New York Times, a guy named David Brooks. Maybe you guys have heard of this guy. And his column struck me because as I was, I was reading it, as I was preparing for this message, a message drawn from Mark chapter 7 where Jesus does battle with the Pharisees. And David Brooks was all up in arms because he doesn't like, he writes about cult, American culture and politics and things like that. He was up in arms because he, he, he's so frustrated with the fact that our politicians are polarized, right? You've got these People way over on the left, way over on the right. And there's no middle, and they can't compromise. They just can't get together. And he's, he's writing about this golden age in the past, you know, where people, there were all these backroom deals going on, and, and, and they, they got along, and they hung out after hours. And, and, and he, he, was, he was lamenting the fact that we seem to have lost this political culture. And honestly, guys who are making that kind of critique are a dime a dozen. And anybody with a sense of history knows that, Opposite political parties have hated each other since the beginning of this whole system. So I'm going to, but but for the sake of this point, I'm going to let that go. What was really interesting about what he said was the explanation he gave for this polarized climate that we're in, for the fact that people just cannot talk to each other. His explanation was that people on both sides of the aisle had lost a sense of their own sinfulness. What they had lost, what earlier generations had, was a sense that everybody was fundamentally weakened morally, that, they, that everyone was held back by a tendency towards sin. He said, that's been lost. Now we project sin as somebody else's problem. Sin is what's at work on the opposite side of the aisle, so that, you have, so that every contest becomes a contest between the, the forces of good and the forces of evil. And you can't compromise if it's a, a battle between good and evil. When you lose the sense of your own weakness, your own sin then you lose the ability to compromise, to see things straight. That was his argument. I think he's dead on, and I think that's exactly the claim Jesus makes in Mark chapter 7. We've seen Jesus do battle with the Pharisees before. Back in chapter 3, uh, he did battle particularly over the issue of, the, of the, the Sabbath. They were so upset that he wasn't following the traditions of the elders. Here, it's a different issue, but the same basic contrast between Jesus' position and their position they had the same two problems as our politicians. They're, the, the problems are, the, are two sides of the same coin. They lost a sense that they were sinful. And because they lost a sense that they were sinful, they believed that those outside their circle were beyond redemption. That they were too far gone. Does that, does that make sense? Two sides of the same coin. When you lose the sense that you are held back by sin, you lose the sense that others are redeemable. From their sin. Those are the two problems Jesus calls out in his in his first in his 
in his exchange with the Pharisees, and then in a couple of stories that Mark tells us where Jesus is doing similar things that we've seen him doing all along, healing people, but they're very particularly placed after this exchange with the Pharisees because here the ones that he's healing are Gentiles. They are pagans. They are idol worshipers. And Jesus goes to them and gives them the same grace that he had given in, uh, to his, his fellow Jews in Judea. That's where we're headed in Mark chapter 7. Two, two radical sides of the same coin. Jesus' claim is that the problem of sin is universal, but the promise of salvation is also universal. Did you guys catch that? This is the first time I've used an alliterated outline. I was taught that you know, for, for a sermon to really land when I was in seminary, you had to, you had, your points had to line up with the same letters, and I've kind of reacted against that on purpose just as a way of sticking it to them. Today, you're getting an alliterated outline. The prob- problem of sin is universal, but the promise of salvation is also universal. That's Mark 7. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever good you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he'd entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. 
Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. You may be seated. So the problem of sin is universal. Chapter 7 opens up with yet another confrontation with the big guns from Jerusalem. We saw these guys who came down from the big city to investigate what Jesus was doing way back in chapter 3 where the issue was, was the Sabbath and the kinds of healings that Jesus was doing. Here, the issue is another one of their most primary distinctives, the issue of cleanness versus uncleanness. Remember, the Pharisees were this group of very devoted practitioners of the law. They were, or at least their particular take on the law of Moses. The Pharisees were those separated ones, that's what it means, those separated out by their devotion, who believed that if the kingdom of God was to come, if the promises made by the prophets were to be fulfilled, they were going to be fulfilled because of radical devotion to the law. And they believed that if radical devotion to the law was to be made possible, we needed a lot more specific instructions than Moses had given us. Because Moses said things like honor your father and mother, but didn't give us the details about what it meant to honor your father and mother. What we need is some more clear instructions about how to live. That's what they thought. And so they had and handed down this long list of traditions built on top of the things that, that the law of Moses had said things that they used to interpret what it would mean to live a life that, that, that was consistent with the law of Moses. That's who the Pharisees were. And they thought that if they were faithful enough, that would be the trigger for bringing in the kingdom of God. One of the most important distinctives for the Pharisees was the way that they cleaned themselves. They, and Mark explains it for his non-Jewish readers in the first several verses of chapter 7. They, they were really into washing their hands. Anytime they went out and could have contact with things that were unclean or people that were viewed unclean, they felt like before they ate, they had to do the total wash. Even, even the things they were using, not, not even their hands, just their hands, but the things they were using to eat, including their dining couches. I'm still not exactly sure what it would mean to wash off a dining couch, but they, they washed their, their dining couches. And they couldn't understand if, if this holy man this Jesus who's claiming to represent the will of the, of the Father. If this holy man is, is denying the traditions of the elders, how is it that, that he expects to remain clean? 
So they go to the disciples and they ask, why? Why, why do you not keep the tradition of the elders and eat with defiled hands? Jesus comes back at them. He comes back at them with a radical critique of their practices. And the real gist of it is a radical critique of their understanding of sin. Jesus' response to them redefines both the nature of sin and how serious a problem it represents. It's a response in two parts. Two parts. First, Jesus says, you're hypocrites. Hypocrites, it's a Greek word, comes from the word, a word for play actors who on stage put on masks pretending to be something that they weren't. According to Jesus, all of the Pharisees' activities were nothing more than pretending to be faithful to, to what God has said. The reason they're just pretending is that they've created standards for themselves that God never required. They've created a list of things that they claim define holiness when God himself never insisted that anyone do these things. For instance, even hand washing was something that the priests were required to do in the, in the law of Moses, but no one else was ever required to do that. The Pharisees came up not just with, with a, a rule that all people should wash, but that they should wash all of these other things and that they should do it every time that they, that they eat. They, in other words, were defining faithfulness based on their own standards. Their claim to honor God is empty because their regulations are man-made and therefore not pleasing to God. That's the gist of his quotation from Isaiah. This is a people who honors me with their lips. They pretend towards faithfulness. They're play actors. But their hearts are far from me. They teach, in other words, as doctrines, the commandments of men. So they're, they're play actors because they have set up their own standards and claim that therefore they're faithful to God. Standards they know they can fulfill. What's worse, though, not only do they establish their own standards, but they, they also find ways of working around the things that God has commanded us to do. The proof that they're hypocrites is, is an example that Jesus gives from one of their practices. The law of Moses is as clear as can be. You honor your father and mother. And in a state that, in a society that didn't have a welfare state, when your, your parents got older, when they got past the age where they could produce and support themselves, you took care of them. That's the way that it, that it worked. And, if, and what more fundamental application of honor your father and mother could there be than to take care of them in their time of need? So here we have these Pharisees claiming that they are the, the vanguards of obedience to the law. But on this fundamental tenet of the, of the Mosaic law, they've created a system where they don't have to take care of their parents in their, system of need, in their time of need. The Pharisees had come up with this concept of Corbin. It's a little bit foreign to us, but it's, it's something like the concept of deferred giving. If you're familiar with how fundraising works, a lot of times people will promise to give a portion of their estate to a university or a museum or some sort of nonprofit when they die. It's written into the will, in other words. But in the meantime, you get to use that property. You get to live off of the interest or whatever. You get to continue living in the house. I don't know, whatever it might be. You get to continue using it, but it's promised to that institution. That's kind of what this concept of Corbin was. You could say, this section of my money or my property is devoted to God, so when I die, it'll go to the temple. 
But for now, I can continue to use it, to live off of it. That's what they were doing. But in effect, it was a loophole for them to keep from using their property to support their parents. So by the letter of the law, of their laws, they were faithful. And that's how they define holiness. Am I faithful to the letter of the law? But the spirit behind the law, they could not have been more unfaithful. Because through their own regulations, they had gotten out from under the, the intent of the law that Moses had handed down to honor your father and mother. They define holiness as an external compliance. So sin for them was external disobedience. And that brings us to Jesus' second argument. The first one, you're wrong, you're, you're hypocrites. You don't grasp the, the, the full weight of, of the problem of sin. His second argument is that they, they, have, they are misguided on the nature of sin itself. The problem of sin, the problem of, of, of defilement, according to Jesus, is a problem that's inside of us, not outside of us. Verse 15, Jesus says to the crowd, to all those who are standing around, there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile them. This is such a radical insight for this Jewish audience who had been trained both through the Mosaic Law but also through the, the things that the Pharisees and others had taught over the years to, to identify themselves and, and, and where they stood before God based on these laws that they obeyed. This is so radical that even Jesus' own disciples don't get the point immediately. It's so radical that even after Pentecost, Peter himself, a leader among the disciples, is still struggling to come to grips with this. You remember the vision that Peter has in Acts when, when, when the, the, the men are coming from the Gentile Cornelius' house to call Peter there to, to, to preach the gospel to them. Peter has this vision of these unclean animals coming down on a sheet. And he's told to take and eat from them because these, these regulations are no longer in effect after Jesus. Peter, Peter's still clueless about this. This is a revolutionary insight for him years after what Jesus has said here in Mark chapter 7. It's a radical claim. Nothing outside of you can defile you because the problem of sin is not outside of you. It's inside of you. Now, Jesus uses food laws as an example. Nothing coming into you can defile because it just comes in, it doesn't touch the heart, and it goes right out. That's a criticism of, of the food laws. But the implication is much bigger than that. The implication is that what's inside and comes out is what matters. Look at the list in verses 21 and 22. There's a lot of different things in this list, but all of us are going to find ourselves condemned somewhere in this list. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. I mean, pride alone is good enough to get all of us. Foolishness alone covers all of us. These are the things you should worry about, not whether or not your dining couch is washed down properly. Sin is not a thing out there that can attach itself to you. Sin is something inside of you, fundamentally. That's Jesus' definition. That's the radi his radical take on sin. And the implication here is that the source of one's actions is far big, a far bigger problem than the actions themselves. The law only treats the symptoms of the problem. The problem is in the heart. The law, in other words, is a band-aid 
that cannot heal the fundamental wound that sin represents for each of us. That's Jesus' claim about the nature of sin. What the Pharisees failed to recognize is that the problem of sin is universal. And that means you can't keep it outside of you. That means it's not somebody else's problem. It's yours. Phariseeism is easy to recognize for us in other people, isn't it? You think of some of the, some of the great characters in literature or television, and, and they just get under your skin. People like Angela from Accounting in the Office. You, know, you, you, see, you see these, ca- these characters and, and the, the fundamental injustice of the way that they look at themselves versus the way they look at others just gnaws away at you. And you've probably got people in your family that are like that or maybe, maybe sort of tangential friends that are like that. But it's, it's harder, though, to recognize Phariseeism in yourself. I mean, part of the problem, with, part of what it is to be a Pharisee is to be masked. It's to be pretending to be something that you're not. And that can be true for you as easily as it can be true for anyone else. You can deceive yourself as quickly, as easily as you deceive other people. So the question is, how do we keep from, from falling into the same errors that these Pharisees had fallen into? How do we avoid, in other words, underestimating the problem of sin and how much it's a problem for us and not just for somebody else? That's a lifelong battle. It's certainly not going to be easy, but I, I do think that there are some questions that we can constantly be asking ourselves to help diagnose our level of Pharisaism. Let me give you just a few questions, a few questions to ask yourself, things that, depending on your answer, may show just how much you tend towards, towards being like the Pharisees. First of all, do you, do you insist on defining holiness through categories that aren't in Scripture? Maybe I should change the word holiness to faithfulness or to, to doing right. Do you define right living through categories that are not first and foremost in Scripture? Now, this can be tricky because usually it'll start well. It'll start out with something that God does require, but then we insist on a second level of requirement on our take on what it would mean to, to live faithfully to what God required. And, and in that second level, th- that interpretation is what we hold people to. That's a, that becomes our standard. I remember there was a particular time in my life where, where I had kind of a roster of words that, that I, I insisted defined whether or not you were holy. I knew that God had commanded us not to be angry. I knew that he had said things like, don't participate in coarse jesting. So I had a list of words that constituted coarse jesting or anger. And if you use those words, that was your problem, right? But it's so easy to, to hold to that list and forget the fact that you can, you can have angry outbursts and use only language that would normally be civil if it wasn't for the way that you were speaking or the, the reason that you were speaking, the motive from which you, you've spoken. I had taken my interpretation of what it meant to live faithfully to things that God had commanded and made that the standard for holiness rather than the, the, than God's commands itself. Material possessions is another classic way of doing this. And that can go either way. So it's easy for us, maybe if you're, if, if, if you're a person who, who lives simply, maybe, maybe for, for you what holiness looks like is to not just live within your means, but to live on less than your means. And, and you see someone who has certain clothes or car or whatever that, that seem like an extravagance to you, and, and you consider them to be unfaithful because they have failed to meet your standard for what faithful living looks like. It can go the other way too. Perhaps you, you've defined faithfulness 
uh, define holy living before God as a certain level of success or certain kind of tastes in, in the things that people choose to have, to own, to, to the way that they choose to live. And so if they have a certain kind of car that doesn't meet to your standards, perhaps it affects the way you view that person. I've seen this in myself. Even as recently as this summer, we were trying to find a new place to live, and there was a while where we thought we might be able to get a house. Uh, we were looking at a couple houses that I thought were really awesome, and I could see myself thinking about people who didn't have a house like that. I could see if I, if I had that house, what would it, what would it, what would it make, how would it make me feel towards those who didn't? Then we ended up not being able to do that, and we, we ended up in a, in a, a, a rental home, a, a duplex that's actually just a couple blocks from here, and it's awesome. It's perfect for us, but it was... I remember my first thought was, because it isn't fancy, I remember my first thought was, well, maybe now I'll look like I don't need a fancy house and people will like the fact that people will think well of me because I'm living in a smaller place than I thought I might be living in. We're like chameleons. We can change to our circumstances in the way that makes us look the best. We justify ourselves inherently. And when we do that in categories that aren't in Scripture, we're being Pharisees. We're defining ourselves through standards that we are able to meet and defining others as unholy or somehow subpar because, because they don't meet those standards. So are your categories in Scripture? Where you live, what kind of words you use, those things, there's, there's, no, there's no biblically codified list for what that's supposed to look like. And if that's how you're defining holiness for yourself and others, you may have some Pharisee in you. Second question you can ask. Do you tend to define sin in ways that leave you guilty or not guilty? Do you tend to define sin in ways that leave you guilty or not guilty? In other words, are you more concerned about explicit sins that are highly visible and that you aren't in any danger of committing yourself than the secret sins of the heart? Do you care more about homosexuality as a social problem, or gay marriage as a political problem, than you do about the lust that you indulged at the gym or at the magazine rack at the checkout aisle? Do you care more, in other words, about highly visible sins that you're not in danger of committing than you care about the things that are in your heart, the things that, that all of us are guilty of? If you're focusing on these externals, chances are you, you are minimizing the extent to which you're guilty. And insofar as you minimize the extent to which you're guilty, you are committing the error of the Pharisees. Third and finally, do you tend to feel harshly towards those who don't meet your standards? Do you tend to feel harshly towards those who don't meet your standards? One of the classic signs of Phariseeism is that we need other people to fail the things that, that we are good at doing so that we feel better about ourselves. It reinforces our sense of being separated from all that's bad and evil. Phariseeism is about separation. And when you're able to separate yourself from that sin, when you're able to define sin as somebody else's problem, then you tend to be very severe towards those who fail. If you have an appreciation of how deeply sin affects you, however, your first instinct should be to respond towards those who fall short with grace. Not to pat them on the back as if the sin doesn't matter. It does. But to treat them as no different from you because sin is a universal problem. 
And these three questions could convict all of us at some level because Pharisaism comes so natural to us. And to whatever extent our answers are yes to these questions, to that extent we show that we don't fully appreciate the weight of sin and the fact that it's universal. And not appreciating the weight of sin, we fail to fully appreciate how radical our need for transformation is. That's what's embedded in Jesus' definition of sin, is that it is a problem so deep in you that no matter how you adjust your actions, you cannot remove the blight that sin represents. Jesus' description of sin as a problem that's inside of you implies that the only solution is a complete transformation that works from the inside out. Jesus' definition of sin means what we need is a radical transformation. What Jesus himself describes as a new birth. We need to be born again. We don't need to shape up. We need to be born again. What we need is a resurrection following our death to sin. And this is something that only Jesus can provide. Anything else, anywhere else you turn to try to get your life right is going to treat symptoms rather than the fundamental problem that's holding you back. The good news is that Jesus' offer of salvation is just as universal as the problem of sin. The salvation Jesus came to give is something that the law could never provide. It comes only through Jesus. There are no clean versus unclean people. We've seen that. Sin is a universal problem. There are just sinners. But there is no one who is so unclean that Jesus can't wash them. And that's the second point made in in Mark chapter 7. The problem of sin is universal. And that's the problem with the way the Pharisees treated their lives. But the promise of salvation is also universal. And once you've fully understood how sinful you are, you can see the redemption. The the fact that others, in spite of the sins you see in them, are also redeemable. Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees in the first half of Mark chapter 7 sets up a shift in focus in the story where Jesus' next phase of ministry gets described. He, for a while, leaves Galilee, a land filled with Jews, and heads into some Gentile areas. And it's here, among these people, people theoretically unclean, that his theory of of clean versus unclean, gets put immediately to the test as he and his disciples pass into what would have been considered the most unclean of areas. What we see in these next two stories is that, is that the salvation promise is universal because Jesus is looking for faith. That's what he's looking for, not some sort of man-made ritual attempts to please God. That's why salvation is universal, because it doesn't depend on the fitness in any one of us. It only requires that we see our need for him and come to him in faith. That's what these next two stories are here to teach us. So, Jesus picks up shop and leaves Galilee. Verse 24 says, He arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. What you need to know about this part of the world is that they were deep and bitter enemies of the people of Israel. A couple hundred years before this, there had been a revolt in Israel where where they tried to overthrow the the uh, the those who who were in power over them, and they were successful for a while until until they the Romans came in and and wiped them clean and the, and the Romans are still in power here. One of the things though that that happened during that revolt that they would not forget is the fact that 
The people in Tyre and Sidon, they joined up with Israel's enemies and fought against them in the revolt. So they were traitors in the mind of the, of the people of Israel. Not only this, they were, they were deeply pagan in the minds of the people of Israel. Their practices, their worship, their lifestyles, they were so far removed from the things of, of, of God as they understood them that these people seemed beyond redemption. These people defined uncleanness. This, as one, one person put it, represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. This trip and Jesus' reception of this particular woman who comes to him for aid universalizes the Jewish Messiah beyond what anybody could have expected. So, Jesus reaches this region and immediately enters his house and a woman comes to him with a daughter who has an unclean spirit. Now, this scene is set up just like what we've seen many times before. In fact, it looks almost exactly like something we saw back in chapter 5. She runs up to him and she falls on her face before him, pleading for him to do something for a loved one that, he, that she can't do for herself. The difference is that in chapter 5, it was a guy named Jairus who was leader in a local synagogue. He was a Jew of Jews. If God had come to redeem anybody, to be for the aid of anybody, it would have been for this guy and his family. Here, the woman coming to Jesus, falling down just like Jairus did, She's about as sharp a contrast from Jairus as we could imagine. Look at the, the litany of things describing her. She was a woman, which was not something uh, that was valued in this time, to say the least. She was a Gentile, something viewed inherently unclean. And she was a Syrophoenician by birth. This is that region I've just described that is, that is deeply rooted in paganism, viewed as beyond redemption and not as someone you would even want to redeem because they were enemies. She is about as far away from redeemable, according to the mindset we've just discussed, as, as possible. And now she comes to Jesus deeply in need. And fortunately for her, she comes to a Jesus who sees only need and faith and not status. Jesus responds to her request for help with a very hard saying, one that seems very mysterious to us. He tells her, he essentially calls her a dog and says that the children's bread should not be given to the dogs. I think we can sort of knock some of the edge off this by realizing that, that the dog he's talking about here is, is not like a, a street dog, a, a a mongrel, it's, it's more of a, a house pet, more of a, a loved member of the family, but, you know, around on, uh, scrambling around under the table rather than sitting at the table with the children. It's a little bit less harsh. It still sounds pretty harsh. His point is that, that he's, he's teasing out her faith. I think that's the best way to understand this. He, he is presenting her with a challenge to what she's asking him for to see just how badly she, she feels her need for him and just how much trust she has in him, whether or not she can be resilient through this challenge. That seems to be what he's, what he's doing. And his claim is no different than what we've seen throughout the New Testament as it describes the way salvation comes to the world. It does come first through the people of Israel. 
They were the ones through whom God had chosen to reveal himself, to work out his salvation in history. They were the ones who had the prophets who, gave, who were given these promises that, that, that Christ has now come to fulfill. And Christ comes as one of them. There is a sense in which the salvation that was coming was bred for this children. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't try to avoid that. But her faith pushes through his initial test. She concedes that whole scheme of how salvation comes into history. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What this encounter with this woman indicates is that Jesus, though he may have come first to the Jews, though theirs were the promises that he came to fulfill, theirs were the promises despite who they were, not because of their inherent quality as a people. Theirs were the promises not because they deserved something other peoples didn't deserve, but because God was gracious. And theirs were promises that were never designed as blessings strictly for them, but that were always intended to be a blessing for the world. Even the original promises to Abraham talk about a people that God would found through Abraham that would be a blessing to all nations. When she came to Jesus, she came to one, in other words, who knew he had come not as a provincial savior, uh, savior of, of one particular people, but as a savior who is able to save anyone, no matter where and no matter how unclean. The only thing to recommend this woman, not her birth, not her pedigree, not her status, the only thing to recommend her is her desperate need, a need that she realizes. And fortunately for her, Jesus know, knows that it's only the sick who need a doctor. Remember his words to those whom he came to forgive as he in, interacted with those who didn't understand his concept of forgiveness? It's the sick who need a doctor. He didn't come for those who had their lives together. He came for those who knew they needed him. Or as one of my favorite poems puts it, the only fitness that he requireth is to see your need of him. The next story only confirms this universal application of Jesus' salvation. Jesus goes through a journey that kind of looks like a horseshoe, ends up in a region known as the Decapolis. And, he, and here, immediately he's confronted with a man who can't hear and he can't speak. And he, he, we're given all this interesting detail about Jesus touching his ears and spitting and touching his tongue and, and, and this, this, this interesting word that he, that he pronounces over the man to open his ears. But ultimately, it looks like a lot of the healing miracles we've already seen. There's nothing too, too distinctive about this story. But what's distinctive about it is where it happens. He is now doing the same miracles that he had done in Galilee in Gentile areas and on behalf of these Gentiles. And there's an even deeper layer in this story, in, in particular in the words that Mark chose to use to describe this man. He is directly echoing a passage from Isaiah chapter 35. In Isaiah 35, we come, it comes at the end of a list of judgment, promises that judgment is coming to all of these nations. And then we get to Isaiah 35. And in Isaiah 35, we get a promise that the, that the salvation that is coming, the, the, the promised salvation will be a source of joy, not just to Israel, but even to Lebanon, to their neighbors, their historic enemies, that, that joy will be extended there. Lebanon is the same region of Tyre and Sidon. It's here. It's where these, this, this actions earlier were taking place. 
In Isaiah 35, one of the signs that that joyful salvation has come to these Gentile peoples is that the deaf will hear and the dumb will speak. And in Isaiah 35, the word used to describe those who can't speak is the same word that Mark uses here, and it is only used in those two places. Mark knew what he was doing. He was essentially quoting Isaiah 35 when he describes this this salvation for this man in need. The point of this story, coming as it does on the back end of his exchange with the Pharisees, is that this theory of clean versus unclean, that is totally wrongheaded, and I can show you that by extending my salvation to those people you consider beyond saving. I have come to bring the kingdom of God, not just to those who seem externally to be faithful, but to bring it even to the far reaches of paganism. His is a salvation that is universal. That's the point of this healing. Yes, it shows Jesus' power in the way that other healings have. But it's healing here of this particular man and of this particular affliction that brings in all of the prophetic promises that a salvation that would extend to the ends of the earth is coming. And it's coming in Jesus. The only question is not whether one is clean or not clean, but whether one has faith in what Jesus can provide and faith that recognizes only Jesus can provide. What matters, in other words, as Jesus himself said in his description, his, his, his combat with the Pharisees, what matters is the heart and its reliance on Jesus. There is such encouragement for us in this truth. There is no one who is beyond saving. It is true, sure, this passage is first and foremost about the difference between Jews and Gentiles and the fact that Jesus transcends that. We don't want to write that away, that distinctive issue that's in play here. But the implication of that, of the fact that Jesus transcends the divide between Jew and Gentile, is that the salvation that he brings, the salvation we've seen him doling out even in in, in signs through the, the miracles he's performed, is that Jesus can save anyone and that that includes you no matter how bad you think you are. The kingdom of God, salvation that Jesus came to bring, it's not dispensed based on your faithfulness to a set of rules. That's what the Pharisees thought, and they were wrong. They thought the kingdom would come because they had gotten their act in order. That's not happening. The kingdom of God, the salvation that Jesus came to bring, is dispensed out of the free grace of God to all those who understand how badly they need him. So what should you do if you're going to claim citizenship in the kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming throughout Mark and what we've looked at for the last two and a half months? What are you going to do if you want to be a citizen in that kingdom? Not clean your act up not do penance for all the things that you've done wrong. You've got to repent. You've got to acknowledge, in other words, how bad you've been. Acknowledge the universal problem of sin that's in you and turn to Jesus for the forgiveness that he came to offer. Again, the same poem I mentioned earlier, an 18th century hymn by Joseph Hart, puts this as well as anyone. Let not conscience make you linger, he wrote, nor of fondness Fitness, excuse me, fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Jesus' message, it's a radical one. It's twofold. The problem of sin is bigger than you thought it was. The problem of sin is universal. That means you. Chances are you're much worse a sinner than you even realize. But so is the promise of salvation. It 
too, is universal. And Jesus came to glorify the riches of his grace, and nothing glorifies the power of his grace more than its ability to save even the worst of sinners. Your sin is real, and it's powerful, and it's ugly, but his grace is so much greater. The point of Mark 7 is for us to join with this deaf man, to join with this woman whose daughter was possessed and to fall on our faces before him to claim the, the, the salvation he came to bring that's big enough even to cover our sins. Will you pray with me?